Hi, my name is Will Stroll and I'm a partner at Pinsent Masons, an international law firm. In this series of podcasts, I'll be taking a brief look at the energy transition and what getting to net zero might look like, as well as looking at some of the challenges facing wind, solar and hydrogen. For this podcast, I thought that it would be very helpful to take a step back and look at why there's been such a massive interest by developers, investors and governments in renewable energy over the past five years or so. I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Allen, founder of Engico, an emissions and energy strategy advisory firm. So, Mark, do you want to say hello? Uh, thanks very much, Will, for that introduction, and um, hello to everyone. Um, yeah, I'll give you a little bit of a uh, background about myself. So, I'm a chemical engineer um, by training, and I've been working 100%, I suppose, devoted and specialised to climate change, energy management, greenhouse gas management since 2007, um, originally in Australia for a number of years and now uh, here in Singapore with my own company. And basically what we look at is climate change risk advisory, helping businesses understand exposure to climate change risk and develop climate change strategy. Everything from calculating emissions all the way through to technical advisory on large-scale abatement options, purchase of offsets, etc. a whole number of things. Brilliant. Um, well, look, it's fantastic. Thanks for that. Um, well, look, getting back to basics, you know, why are we sitting here talking about renewable energy? Um, you know, there's a lot of more important subjects out there, craft beer and things like that. I know you're keen to do a podcast on. So so why renewable energy? And, you know, what, what's what's the issue at the moment? What are we talking about? Yeah. So, look, there, there's, I suppose, a, a big driver now for decarbonisation and uh, decarbonising, I suppose, the entire world of industry and getting to what we call net zero, which we'll explain a little bit later. So uh, climate change and physical impacts of climate change and as a result of potential physical impacts from climate change, now policy frameworks and policy positions around decarbonisation by countries, which then filters down to companies, means that there's a whole lot of opportunity around changing the system, you know, the current system generates emissions in every part of the value chain all day, every day, really, uh, pretty much. So, you know, everything we're doing all day, every day generates emissions. So renewable energy is one of those big decarbonisation options that supports now these these global goals to, um, to decarbonise. And you've mentioned sort of a couple terms there, which I thought might just be helpful to kind of explain. So, you know, the first one, if we're talking about sort of the energy transition, and what are we what are we really talking about when we talk about that? Yeah, so so the energy transition, I suppose, as as the name suggests, is is the transition of the energy industry, as as I said before, you know, the traditional energy industry and the bulk of the way we still get our energy today uh, involves combustion of fossil fuels and fossil fuels containing carbon and hydrogen. The hydrogen part is the bit that actually gives you energy. The uh, carbon bit goes into um, making CO2 and CO2 actually now becomes an issue for for climate change. Um, so what we're doing in terms of the energy transition is actually changing the way in which we generate electrons and in which we generate energy more broadly and changing also how we use that. So then um, that in itself, I suppose, is a is a fundamental 
change to almost the bedrock of the economy. The economy exists on the back of fossil fuels, on the back of cheap energy at the moment. And um, that has to change to try and achieve some of these um, uh, these decarbonisation goals. One, one thing you mentioned was sort of getting to net zero. And, and I think, you know, again, be helpful to understand what does net zero mean in the context of the energy transition and you know, when we're talking about these goals. Yeah, sure. And and I suppose there's a there's a couple of things to unpack here. And, and net zero itself has been a bit of a buzzword um, in recent times. A lot of companies set net zero goals, a lot of countries set net zero goals. Um, I suppose that the reality is the way the economy works right now and the, and the way the energy system works right now is there are going to be some sectors, some areas that are actually hard to get to absolute zero, so hard to reduce those emissions to zero and um, uh, and some hard to decarbonize sectors. So we end up now with this concept of net zero where we're still able to put emissions into the atmosphere, but at the same time we need to take them out of the atmosphere somewhere else and actually... Um, you know, if we talk about decarbonisation pathways, we have to, to achieve some of these sort of global goals, extract more CO2 out of the atmosphere than we're putting in and achieve what's called negative emissions. So net zero is is halfway along there. So where the amount you're putting into the atmosphere is balanced out by the amount you're taking out. And you can do that through, say, purchase of offsets um so something like uh reforestation projects for example uh you know what's called being called nature-based solutions by um, a lot of the industry where i'm putting emissions into the atmosphere over here in my facility but i'm offsetting those emissions by you know planting 20 million trees somewhere else that's out of my boundary and then the two balance each other out um and that's achieving net zero emissions so what okay. you're doing is you're you're offsetting your emissions by doing something else when we actually reduce our physical emissions we're doing what we call abatement so so we're actually reducing our own number reducing the amount of co2 that we put up into the atmosphere but because it's difficult to get to absolute zero then we need to have this this amount of, of um, net zero yeah that, that makes sense so you know to summarize you know getting to net zero we effectively have a two-prong attack on greenhouse gases and, and the first is parties try to reduce the amount they produce or the amount they use and the second is if you are still using greenhouse gases you try to increase the amount you can set off through carbon capture um you know be that natural or otherwise through technical technological solutions so yeah thanks for that um i thought you know we we talked about earlier very briefly the sort of Paris Climate Agreement, and I think it's maybe fair to say that this kicked off this current round of um, sort of worldwide interest in renewables. So I thought it might be a reminder. So, you know, the Paris Climate Agreement was a legally binding treaty on climate change. Um, it was adopted by 196 parties at the 2015 United Nations Climate Change Conference, or what's known in the Indian industry as sort of COP21, in December 2015 and entered into force in November 2016. And the goal of COP21 was to limit global warming to well below two degrees Celsius and preferably one and a half degrees Celsius as compared to 1990 levels. And to achieve this, 
countries aim to reach a global peaking of greenhouse gas emissions as soon as possible to achieve net zero, as we just talked about, um, but sometime between 2050 and 2100. So as part of the Paris Agreement, countries are required to submit a nationally determined contribution by the end of 2020, which would set out how these countries aim to reduce their natural emissions and to adapt to the impacts of climate change. And we're now, you know, in the early stage of 2021 um, and countries were due to submit their NDCs or nationally determined contributions by the end of 2020. So we can look back now and see how we did, what the scorecard is. And in total, we have 44 countries plus the EU's 27 member states um, who have actually met this deadline. Some of the big emitters did register their NDCs in time, including the UK and the EU, but major absences included the US, China and India. And it's not really been a surprise, I guess, uh, you know, looking back at 2020, it's been dominated by COVID-19. Um, you know, so climate change has probably taken a, a slight back burner in terms of the main agenda. Um, and it, it would appear that we're still some way short of the COP21 targets. But I think, Mark, you probably agree that the conversation has shifted since 2020. Um, you know, people are now talking about meeting the targets in a much more serious way. It's become a much more important aspect of business plan of in industry. Um, and I think, you know, as we've seen, the renewable energy scene has exploded massively in the last five years. Yeah, ab absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's been there's been a lot of well, there, there is continuing to be a lot of momentum um, and I suppose one thing, you know, the first first NDCs were um, submitted in 2015. It was meant to be the second NDCs that uh, uh, submitted um, at the end of 2020. A lot of times this actually has ended up being an enhanced first NDC, um, so where some changes have been made. But um, you're absolutely right. Some There are certainly some absences. And, um, you know, what the NDC does in, in many ways is actually set also the uh, short to medium term targets as well as a long term intention. By the end of 2020, every country was to have submitted their long-term intention in terms of um, uh, longer-term targets out to 2050 plus. And this is one of the reasons we're starting to see a lot more in terms of discussion around net zero by 2050 at a country level. Yeah. And I think what's important to note is, although only about 44 or 45 parties have actually submitted their NDCs for 2020, I think in total, more than 110 countries in total have actually pledged carbon neutrality by 2050. And China has pledged to do so by 2060. And we're still waiting to see, you know, what the ambition will be of the new Biden administration, which has just recently rejoined COP21. So that, I think that might be quite a big driver once, um, you know, America comes fully on board. And in terms Indeed. of the scorecard of the, of the countries, you know, where we are, two countries have actually achieved net zero. So that's a cause for celebration although they are actually Bhutan and Suriname, so maybe not such large emitters already. Um, six countries have introduced binding legislation, including France and the UK, and a further six countries have legislation proposed, and that includes the EU, Canada, South Korea, and Spain. So it's, you know, looking at, I mean, what's quite interesting, and I think you to look at is kind of how we would meet the targets or not meet the targets based on the sort of current policies and there's a you know good website, Climate Action Tracker, actually tracks where we might end up on this. So I'll share with you, Mark, see what you think about these. But the you know warming predicted by 2100 based on the current policies and targets as stated by all the countries who've made um, climate change policies, 
Climate Action Tracker predict that we'd have reached 2.7 to 3.1 degrees increase by 2100. If we include all of the pledges and targets of the 110 countries, and they actually do come through with those reductions, then they expect to see an increase of 2.6 degrees. So you know, what we can see is we're still far short of the targeted 1.5 to 2% increase, but um, you know, each year we see greater and greater interest from countries, um, and by and large, we're starting to see increased target, targeted emission reductions. Is, is that fair to say? Um, yeah, yeah, it, it, it is fair to say. Look, I, I think the reality of the nationally determined contributions is that they are indeed, um, you know, not in line, or by and large, not in line with what's required to achieve the overall temperature goals. You know, as we mentioned, the overall goal of the Paris Agreement is to achieve well below two degrees and pursue efforts to achieve 1.5 degrees um, temperature rise by 2100. Uh, and we're clearly, level. clearly, clearly above that at the moment. Correct, correct. That's right. And um, so a few things which actually stand out to me and, and you know, these are um, my own opinions at this, um, at this point, but... I think in terms of increases, major increases in ambition that are documented in NDCs, um, in this round of um, updated NDCs, I don't think there'll be much. But in 2023, what we're doing is the UNFCCC, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, is doing what's called the global stock take. So this happens in 2023, where we actually look where are we and where do we need to be in time for the next round of NDC updates in 2025. So one of the commitments under the Paris Agreement is every five years, you have to resubmit your NDC. And um, it is said that that should come along with increased ambition, as, as you might expect. So I would, I personally think that the 2025 round of NDCs will actually see quite a big increase in ambition by many countries, which of course, then has a huge impact on businesses because, you know, you start to see something like strong carbon pricing policy with a high carbon price, for example. And, and I suppose what companies don't like at the end of the day and what they um, struggle to deal with at the end of the day is very fast changes in political landscapes. So, um, yeah, and there's, there's a danger, I suppose, or a risk that that will happen quickly in the 2025 round. So if we look at, you know, what is the decarbonisation pathway we're on now, we can, you know, quite clearly say that it's not enough to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. And if we then look at what is the decarbonisation pathway that we need, it's actually now to achieve for the two-degree temperature rise, net zero emissions globally sometime between 20. 50 and 2070. This is the standard um, uh, timeline that we're, we're thinking about to achieve two degrees. Some, from a budget point of view, might think it's a little bit earlier than that. And then after that point, though, actually removing CO2 from the atmosphere. And similar with 1.5, to achieve 1.5, we need to hit net zero by 2050 as a, an entire globe, um, which is actually really difficult because every country is at a different stage in its development. Um, but as well as that, all of these scenarios include CO2 removal, large-scale CO2 removal from the atmosphere, which is expensive and not available at scale, apart from with a tree and with loads of trees. <laughs> 
So I think, I mean, what, what was really interesting there about what you said is, whilst we may not be on target at the moment, you know, corporates who are looking ahead and trying to be, um, you know, sensible in their future carbon emissions and planning, may be thinking that further legislation, regulatory changes, policies will be coming ahead. I mean, you know, more binding commitments from jurisdictions will be implemented, you know, by 2025, 2030. So corporations, and I'm talking, you know, the oil and gas majors or just large energy users generally, you know, the steel industry or just large corporates who are looking ahead at kind of how this might impact their bottom line. I mean, what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of those corporates are moving into alternative energy policies now in yep. advance of kind of, you know, binding commitments coming in. So, I mean, as part of that, that's probably, you know, why we're seeing such a huge increase in investment in renewable energy. You know, we're seeing that from the oil majors, but we're also seeing, you know, corporates who haven't traditionally been involved in the sector moving in to this sector, you know, either as a way yep. to offset their own emissions in other parts of their industry or just simply because they view it as a way of a, you know, a, a revenue stream, which will be you know, a vital part of the world going forward. Indeed. And if you're taking a risk based, scenario based approach to your future corporate strategy, you need to be considering that the world at some point and at some point soon will be getting onto a two degree pathway or getting onto a 1.5 degree pathway and then considering. Right. So then. You say, this is the decarbonisation we need. What does that mean to me as a business? What does that mean in terms of carbon pricing and how does that impact my, my value chain? Or what are the things that I can do to, to decarbonise my own operations or decarbonise across my value chain because that decreases my exposure to this risk? That's the sort of thinking that um, is being done at a corporate level. And I think one one aspect, again, I mean, all the pathways to, you know, the, the, the net zero future that I've seen involve a mass electrification of all parts of industry. And as part of that, we'll see a massive increase in the use of power generally, you know, worldwide. So renewable energy is going to be a key part of getting to net zero. Um, I think you know, I've seen energy accounts for about 73 percent of all greenhouse power emissions. But it's not as simple as simply replacing all the power stations with solar and wind because that 73% comes from a variety of different sectors. So transport takes 16%, energy use in buildings, 17%, energy use in industry, 24%. So I think, you know, renewables currently provide about 28% of world energy use. Um, coal and gas provide about 60%. And the bulk of existing renewable capacity has been historically from hydro. Um, but hydro capacity has remained fairly flat and static. So what we're seeing are massive investments into wind and solar. And I think those massive investments will be needed if we're going to you know, achieve anywhere near the pathways that people are being talk, talk, talked about. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. And, and look, I think of this in, in a few steps. I think, you know, number one thing we should be doing is everything that can be run on electricity should be run on electricity. So um, everything from, you know, low-grade heat requirements in um, industrial settings, um, you know, boilers and making uh, lower-pressure steam, for example, um, uh, vehicles, you know, should be mass electrification of vehicles, public transport, um, etc. Um, even at a residential point of view, using things like induction cooktops, and um, heat pumps for water heating and, and all of this technology, 
that relies on electrons. So, so if we electrify everything, right, and that gets rid of, I suppose, quite a lot of hydrocarbons out of the um, final energy use category by businesses and by individuals, and then also at the same time clean up the electricity generation system. So huge move to renewables away from um, uh, traditional, more traditional energy sources, and then of course trying to tackle the energy storage issue to um, account for the uh, intermittency in renewable energy and there are certainly plenty of ways that we can do that with with batteries or with hydrogen or with pumped hydro or with um, uh, having distributed systems across wide areas um, etc so the there once we do that that's a lot of the um, uh, easy to do decarbonization options already happening and we then we can concentrate on the harder to decarbonize areas so thinking about steel manufacturing or cement manufacturing or the agriculture industry what do we have to do to um to decarbonize those areas and then basically leaving us with the leftover which ends up being done with offsets yeah well i think what's so exciting about this area and you know you probably see it even more than i do mark is that just the sheer scale of the challenge involved is really um set very high bar for new technological you know, advancements and improvements. So things we might yep. not have thought were possible, you know, five or 10 years ago are now routinely being done, you know, battery storage, you know, everyone said it was too expensive and now we're seeing gigawatt solar, gigawatt storage, you know, capacity quite easily done, you know, wind and solar are becoming cheaper and cheaper, you know, cheaper than coal in most jurisdictions. So I think that's what's, you know, really exciting is kind of, it's a humongous challenge, but there's also a humongous opportunity for, you know, innovation and new technologies to shine out. Um, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. We'll the scale, the scale of this thing the is is unfathomable. It's yeah, it's it's really changing everything that we do or the way we provide energy um, uh, currently. And you know, every part of industry is is touched in some way. Um, and I suppose to 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 put it into perspective, you know, from a purely thermodynamics point of view, the uh, size of the industry that removes the CO2 from the atmosphere has to be bigger than the size of the industry that put it up there in the first place, right? <laughs> because you can't be 100% efficient. And that's huge, right? <laughs> it's so big and there's so much opportunity, um, which means, you know, obviously it's quite challenging as well. Um, yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, maybe one of the largest challenges is, you know, increasing the re renewable energy mix is something which we can do and we know how to do that. But the carbon capture and storage, which seems to play a large part in any of these um, scenarios of getting to net zero, I think that might, for me, seem to be still the, the biggest missing piece of the puzzle. Um, I don't yeah. know. What do you think about that? Yeah. Um, yeah and I've worked in CCS um, uh, for some time as well and certainly understand the challenges. The biggest challenge at the moment is actually the expense, I think. So, so technically, all of the little pieces can theoretically mm -hmm. add up and it has been proven at industrial scale so ccs does work however the big issue becomes the value of that co2 that you're capturing whether it's in a utilization um ccus so you're using it for something how much value are you extracting for that kind of co2 or whether you are um, assigning the value as a result of you're not now having to pay a carbon price, right? So you need a pretty high carbon price to support the cost 
of capturing CO2 and compressing it into what's called dense phase CO2, which is not an insignificant task as well, and then piping it to where you need it to be, to a storage location, and then sticking it underground. Um, all costs money and actually is it's very expensive, um, you know, which is actually one of the reasons why the projects that have been most successful at this stage um, are the ones that are now using CO2 for enhanced oil recovery because you're actually extracting now additional oil out of the um, out of the ground as a result of the CO2 that you're putting into the reservoir, which actually provides now a big value. And yes, absolutely, it's um, counterproductive in many many ways. <laughs> it's also, yes, yes. <laughs> but but that is, but it's that, that is exactly that is the um, the use case at the moment. The 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 carbon capture and utilization pathway that actually has a positive business case today um, most of the other utilization cases for co2 um, there's actually the demand for the thing that you make right let's say you're making methanol or let's say you're you're making um you're embedding co2 into plastic products or something like that the demand of that thing is much smaller than the amount of co2 that you've got so if you or, yeah. or if you put it into fizzy drinks for example um you just you know blow out the entire industry with one large point source of emissions. So um, I'm just going to also say that uh, putting CO2 into fizzy drinks is absolutely not permanent sequestration in any way. It just turns into, <laughs> into billions of tiny point sources from one big point source, right? So <laughs> I just want to make that clear. Okay, that's a shame because I was hoping to do my personal bit by uh, drinking a lot of sparkling water, but apparently that's not going to help. Well, look, look thank you very oh, much for those. Come out. <laughs> it will come out again. Right? Well, look, thank you very much for that, Mark. That's been really, really helpful and a really interesting talk. Um, and thank you for listening to this podcast on the energy transition and net zero. In the following episodes of this podcast series, we'll be looking at the varying types of renewable energy technologies, how to finance renewable energy projects, as well as looking at some of the issues that investors and developers face in getting some of these renewable energy projects off the ground. Many thanks for joining us and please get in touch if you have any questions.